It is time for another TechBond episode. My guest today is Ross Simmons. Ross is a digital marketing strategist, entrepreneur, founder, renowned speaker, and writer. Ross founded Hustling Grind and Foundation Marketing. In this conversation, Ross and I speak about the definition of a hustler and world-class content marketing. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to the sponsor for this episode, Ahrefs. Ahrefs provides you with an all-in-one SEO tool set that does everything from rank tracking to backlink analysis, keyword research, and technical audits. You can start a seven-day trial for just a dollar a day. And if you're curious to learn more, check out my Twitter thread, in which I show my three favorite Ahrefs tips. And now without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Mr. Ross Simmons. Three, two, one. Ross, welcome to TechBound. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Looking forward to chatting today. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I am pumped. I've been following you for a long time and uh, you're doing some really cool stuff. Um, to jump right in, what is the definition of a hustler? Yeah, so my definition of a hustler is definitely a little bit different than I think a lot of people have uh, perceived it as today. My definition is pretty much around mindset and it's the idea that on a bad day, a hustler sees them as sees themselves as somebody who needs to improve drastically. And on a good day, they see themselves as someone who could still do things to improve themselves. Like the perspective and the mindset of a hustler is simple. And it's just like, I always need to be improving. I need to be putting in the time to work on my craft. I always can get better and I should always have a growth mindset to do that. And I'm willing to put in the time to figure out how to be great and excellent at my craft until I essentially take my last few breaths and your craft can change, right? Like I know some people who hustle very hard to be a great parent. I know some people who hustle very hard to be a great SEO, people who hustle very hard to do great things in their communities and things of that nature. So for me, the mentality of a hustler is really just that commitment to improvement and being focused and willing to put in the work to get better and be great at something. See, I for myself, I love my job and I think I'm really privileged that I'm able to do something that I love every day. Right. So for me, you know, work is more, it's almost more play and it's not its not necessarily draining. Sure, there are some draining aspects sometimes, but you know, 90% of the time I'm having a good time while working. And I think there's also the other side where some people don't have that chance. How, what do you say to people who critique this idea of the hustle lifestyle? Yeah, it gets a lot of hate. It needs to be started with a, a fundamental reality that I think a lot of folks forget. And that is that everyone is built different, right? Like some people just can't work 12 hours a day. Some people can. I'm not saying that one's better and one's worse. It's just different. Um, and we get caught up in this idea of everybody should work smart and don't work hard. And while this is a cool tweet that will get a bunch of retweets and people will say, yeah, we should work smart. We shouldn't work hard. The reality is like you should work hard if you want to accomplish something. If you're not trying to accomplish a lot of things, if you are okay with things just as they are, I'm not saying again that that's better or worse. That's okay. You can be completely content with where you are. But if you are someone who does have an ambition or an itch to achieve some element of excellence in your own lane and your own ambitions, then you should be okay with hustling towards that goal. Yes, you can work hard, you can work smart at the same time, but we also have to recognize that if you take two people with the same intelligence, 
the same amount of privilege, the same amount of circumstances. They came out of the same person. They're twins. Like they lived the exact same life. The person who works harder is going to get further than the person who doesn't. And it's just as simple as that. So a lot of people don't realize and don't clue into the fact that yes, I understand and everyone should be able to understand that yes, there's no question that not everyone can work 12 hours a day and still feel good, but some people can. And for those people who can do that, I say power to you continue to do it. And I think it's important that we shift this narrative a bit because a lot of people are saying we shouldn't preach about hustle. We shouldn't preach about working hard. All of those things. I think we should. I really think you should because there's a lot of people and I would say myself included. When I was young, I had a perspective and a belief that essentially what happens happens. If you go through life, things are just going to happen. And you are lucky if you get a break, if you happen to get an opportunity. But in reality, you have to create some of your own luck. You have to do things that are going to increase the likelihood of you getting lucky and having opportunities fall into your lap. And when you have a mindset that is just like, what's going to happen is going to happen and everything happens for a reason without realizing that oftentimes you can influence the reason, I think people go down a path where they just settle and they don't achieve their actual full potential. So I also would say, you have to be careful with the narrative because a lot of people who do proclaim that hustle is bad and that you shouldn't work hard, they say those things after they've made it, like after they've put in the handful of late nights, after they've gotten and raised millions of dollars of seed funding and they've created these massive companies, then they start to say, yeah, hustle's bad, you shouldn't do that. Well, to the person who's listening that is living in their parents' basement, like I was, who is in overdraft in their bank account, has no understanding of personal finances, I am here to tell you, you should hustle. You really should. You should put in the late nights. You should work hard because if you don't, you are going to be in a trap. And there is no prize for being like broke. And as someone who was broke before and has gone through a moment where it's like, let me put gas in the tank, but I can only afford $5. I can tell you it's way better to be able to start daydreaming while you're pumping gas than to be worrying about whether or not you can afford the $5. And I would encourage people to actually be okay with hustling. So I think at the end of the day, long story, a little bit longer. And as you can tell, I get passionate about this subject. Um, you have to start by understanding fundamentally that everybody is different. Some people have ambitions to break out of a struggle. Some people have ambitions to fundamentally change the world. Some people have ambitions to be a great dad, a great mom, and you sometimes have to hustle to do those things and reach where you want to be. And I encourage people to have a honest conversation with themselves. Sometimes you just don't want it. And that is okay. I'm not saying that you need to hustle. I'm saying it's okay for other people to make the decision that they want to and to strive for something, to strive for being better and to getting what they want. So that's kind of my thoughts. I know that was a very long-winded answer. It might be even the end of the podcast at this point. We've already <laughs> gone um, long into this one. No, I love it. I'm, I'm just as passionate about this as you. And that's why I started the conversation with these questions because you do a lot of great things and we can Appreciate it. and will speak about foundations marketing and uh, all the other projects that you're involved in, the angel investment and so on. 
But I think it's an important topic because in in my mind, I think two things can be true at the same time. On the one hand, you need to understand when to recharge and how far you can push yourself. On the other hand, nothing great ever came from not working hard. You know, like certain things it's just true. take hard work. And yeah. No matter which side of life you're looking at it from, right? Like, like my parents did a great job raising me, but they worked really hard to do that. And you look at social causes, the people who made the most fundamental impact in social causes, they worked hard. They hustled to do those things. But for some reason, hustle gets a bad rap and I don't get it. You look at sports, like the Olympians who are winning those gold medals put in time. And to your point, yes, rest is important. You have to have breaks. You should. There's studies that talk about the power of sleep. As someone with two newborns, I can tell you with 100% certainty that sleep is important. Um, and I get my rest, but I'm also very much an advocate of the hustle. And I think you're right. Two things can be true at the same time. Um, and a lot of people misunderstand that. Correct. And, and it, I'm passionate because it sometimes gives the wrong illusion that, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too, which is rarely the case, right? I, th- I see a lot of young people who start their first job or their first role at a company and they expect to be promoted every year and right. they expect to work no longer than eight hours tops. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, you know, like it's not that everybody has to work until they burn out. That is, right. that also should not be the case, right? But there is, I think, a, a bit of a mindset shift um, in these newer generations. And when I, when I talk to my parents, you know, who've, who worked very hard for a long time, I tell them that, you know, there are some people out there who just want to travel the world for a couple of years. Right. That's hard for them to understand. And nothing wrong with that, right? Like, as you right. said, everybody should, everybody needs to follow their path and everybody needs to do the thing. And there's no judgment in that. But to accomplish great things, you, you have to put in the hours. What, what does what does a hustle look like for you day to day? You know, like, again, you're doing a lot of different things. How does it all come together? What does a day look like in your world? Yeah, so it's very, it's very different from day to day. I would say my days start at about 7.30. So 7.30 or so, I'm waking up, I'm going in, I'm seeing my daughters, I'm hanging out, we're reading books, getting ready, I'm doing their hair, having some fun, playing, blah, blah, blah. We go downstairs, they help me get a coffee, all of that good stuff, we're kicking it for a bit. Then I go up to the office and I start to plug in. I put in the headphones and I'm working at it pretty much straight until 12. Then I'll go downstairs again at lunch, hang out with the girls again, have dinner, might have a tea party. Then I'm going back up and I'm probably grinding it out until about five. At five, I come down, family dinners, always have that. Um, We're having dinner, hanging out, we put the girls down. And then after that, I'm spending some time with my partner. Then after that, um, I come back up to the office, typically around 10.30 and I will work from 10.30 usually to 12. And then I go to sleep and then I'm back up again at 7.30. And that's pretty much my cycle unless it's the weekends. And then on the weekends, I completely am unplugged during the days until the evenings. And then in the evenings, I typically will do from 10.30 until 11.30, maybe 9.30 until 12, um, catching up on some projects and executing and stuff like that. When you work, what does that look like? How do you split your time between your different projects? Yeah, good question. So I live and die my my calendar. I have this acronym that we use internally, uh, showed it to Wu-Tang. We stole the idea from them. They always said cash rules everything around me. I believe in calendars rule everything around me. Like my calendar is everything. 
I schedule dates. I schedule it all um, in my calendar. If I have a dentist appointment, it's in my calendar. All, everything goes into my calendar and I review and optimize my calendar based off of priorities. So I know every week I have to publish an essay. So I ensure that in my calendar, I have time blocked to create that essay. I have also embraced this concept called Wired in Wednesdays, where on Wednesdays, I don't take any calls. I don't take any meetings. I am solely plugged in to execution. So I use my Wednesdays to take no meetings, no status updates. All I'm doing is executing on projects that have a deliverable that I need to implement. So that could be writing a piece, that could be recording a video, that could be putting together a pitch deck, that could be making um, some type of piece of content, doing research, working on a product, coming up with a new product, all of those different things, strategizing, all these things uh, would be in that Wednesday block. And then again, it's just based off of my calendar doing those things time and time again that's fun when you come full circle i I tried out most productivity methods out there and coming back to the calendar was the best thing (laughs) yeah it's the oldest tool in the book but for me it's the most consistent i use that in a good old-fashioned notepad like i have a, a paper notepad that i just still check off items as they're getting accomplished i think it's still like a a old scent like habit that just feels good when you get to check in a check a box to say something is done. And uh, do you have a do you have a team or do do you do it all yourself? Yeah, no. So we have a team. So the team foundation is about twenty five plus now, and by the time this goes live, it might be at thirty or so. We're uh, we're growing rapidly, um, and yeah, we're fully remote. We've been remote since the start. I realized when I was really early in my career that I love the autonomy of being able to not get stuck in traffic and just run off of my own calendar, not have someone over my shoulder. And I said, I want to create a culture and an organization where people can do that. So since 2014, we've been fully remote and we're continuing to hire folks who are remote from all over the globe, which has been uh, has been amazing to kind of see the team go from um, just being a small province called Nova Scotia. So a lot of people listening are like, wait, Ross is from Nova Scotia? I would have never guessed. But yeah, like I live in a very small province, less than a million people are here on the east coast of Canada, um, but we have employees at Foundation all over the globe. Yeah, as somebody who has, for quite a while, spent a lot of time in San Francisco traffic, until about a year ago, I can right. I can sympathize with that. And now at Shopify, we're 100% remote and we'll stay remote, and, and, I, and I love that. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about like how your team works together. Like Obviously, you're not like foundations does a lot of great case studies. You do a lot of content marketing and so on. Like, what does that that workflow look like? Yeah, so foundation is always our our ambition for the company has always been different from most agencies. Like most agencies, give me a lot of fear because they're pure play service engines where if they lose a client, they can essentially shut down, and that has always given me a lot of fear. So I intentionally created foundation with the intent of having a diversified revenue stream where we're not just a service-based agency. We do create content for clients. Our bread and butter is B2B SaaS companies. So we work with everything from some of the fastest growing startups all the way through to publicly traded billion dollar companies who have been doing cloud cloud computing, et cetera, for years. So we work with those types of companies on strategy, content creation, and content distribution. We do that consistently. And we have a handful of our foundationites, is what the team would call themselves, um, working on the service side. We also have Foundation Labs in media, which is essentially things like Hustle and Grunt, which is an e-commerce site that we run. We have another website that is a plugin called Proud Bagger that generates revenue. We have a handful of courses and information products that we sell 
to help marketers as well. So that entire entity also allows us to diversify our revenue, but also gives us the ability to play and force us to stay on top of our game by innovating and testing and tinkering and then applying the insights from those things that we run and we operate into our service engine as well. So in addition to that, we're continuously innovating on our business model and rolling out a handful of new things. Uh, We're planning to start rolling out um, a whole new division that is dedicated to data and some of the research that we've been publishing recently is going to live in that section of the site. And we're going to have a handful of new assets that we hope will help content marketers and marketers in general just do our job better. Like my goal with Foundation is to elevate marketing as a industry entirely by just creating great content. And if I can and we can create great content, just like this podcast that you're doing, so shout out to you for moving the culture forward as well. Like if we have better marketers, who are not doing scammy things, our entire profession elevates and we will get the seats at the table that we deserve in the boardroom. And I think that's going to start to happen more and more as more marketers are actually realizing that brand isn't just fluffy. It can be a competitive advantage. That SEO isn't just fluffy. You can actually drive meaningful, sustainable business results from this that will give you a competitive edge that won't just impact your traffic, but can impact your market cap. And when we start to have those conversations, the whole industry is going to change. So that's what gets us excited every single day. So again, I've taken one question and gone a whole nother way. Our team is split up across these functions, um, across the org, and we essentially put specialists on projects as needed, and we just continue to create content that hopefully shapes culture, whether it's for our clients or for the marketing industry at large. That's a perfect segue to some of the case studies uh, and tweets that I wanted to dive into that you recently put out. I think I first took note of you when you pushed out a case study about Masterclass, which was amazing, Mm. and basically dissected how they... Um, structure the content and SEO strategy. And there are multiple other great case studies on your site, like Snowflake and, and many others. How do you approach those breakdowns? Like, what's the thinking behind it? Is there some sort of a system? How do you do that? Good question. So it's naturally being curious. So that's where it starts. And I know that's vague, and a lot of people are like, "Okay, Russ, I get it. That's a very cliche answer." But I am just a naturally curious person, and I love reverse engineering the success of other organizations and people in general. So like across my entire career, I've been obsessed with reverse engineering the success that other people have. And it goes back to that early conversation we had about hustle. Like when I was living in my parents' basement, not having any revenue or money to pay for anything that I wanted, I was like, how do I get where I want to be? I need to look at some of the people who are where I want to be. I need to break down and analyze their LinkedIn accounts to see how they got to that point. And then I need to try to follow in their footsteps in some way. For SaaS companies, which is our target audience and the people who we spend the vast majority of our time with, we reverse engineer the giants and the successes that they've had. And we analyze it with our own deep understanding of content excellence. And we apply that from a lens of SEO. And we have people on our team who are special in SEO, so they come in and they provide perspective on that. We have people on our team who are experts in social and content, so they come in and they provide a perspective on that. And then we take all of that together to analyze and report back to the industry. This is how this company did it. And the reason why we do this publicly is because we want other organizations to win too. We want to see and hear from the industry, hey Ross, hey Foundation, we read this piece that you created, We changed our strategy and now look at us. Thank you for publishing this. That was amazing. Can you also do some work for us? Of course we can. So it has a a ripple effect from a marketing lens as well. 
which along all these breakdowns and case studies, which company inspired you the most or which one do you think is the best one out there? Yeah, so I'm going to pick one that is our one of our least visited, which is a teardown on Adobe. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of marketers get so, so, so caught up in whoever is the fa- fanciest new hot startup, the new cool business without remembering like some of the giants, some of the organizations in SaaS who have truly unlocked competitive advantages that will be difficult to shake and they have created impressive moats should be studied. And Adobe, who we broke down of how they've done it and how they're fending off competitors, how they're responding to incumbents is one of my favorite teardowns that we've done. But it's also one of our least read pieces, um, which is interesting. So if you are listening to this and you go to foundationinc.co and you do check out um, the Adobe teardown, I think you'll find it very, very interesting. It's called Adobe's $200 billion unshakable moat. And it talks about how they combine creativity with SEO, with YouTube, video content, and user-generated content to just dominate the creative market. And of course, you will find the link to that in the show notes. So hopefully we can turn it from the least to the most visited. Uh, like piece on your side but yeah, Adobe is really interesting man like I, I think they recently sell, uh, um, created a new page format that they scaled a couple thousand times and they I saw like an uptick in traffic they do they keep on doing some really interesting things and they mm-hmm. as you said they look like this giant who like once invented yeah. Flash and now Flash is dead and yeah. uh, they're not they're not they're not that bad at all they do some really they're cool not. things they are doing a lot of cool things people are sleeping on the fact that they are putting on a master class in marketing and how to sustain yourself as a leader um, in a market. And I know not a lot of us can say we're a leader in the market, thus that might be why it's not so attractive to folks, but they are doing a great job at avoiding being disrupted across a lot of spaces. It's uh, cool to see. It is really hard to stay on top of a category. I had this great conversation yes. with Pep Laya recently. And I'm also going to put the link in the show notes here for the listeners. Um, exactly about this topic, how do you dominate a category, how do you get to the to the pole position and how do you even stay there, which is a total art in itself. And uh, you see these different traffic patterns or traffic trends when you look at sites. Uh, and when they had a really good run, they often grow and then they plateau and they can't, there's like a plateau that they just can't break through. So I wonder, you know, how do you think about companies building content marketing muscles when they're pretty young, but also how do you get them to that next level once they have already achieved a certain size? Yeah, I think it's just like an investment, right? I talk about this often, but I think like anyone who um, has any type of personal investments, we as marketers should be thinking about the brands that we represent in the same way. And what I mean by that is if you looked at your investment portfolio and the way that you invest, it's going to be very different from a 70-year-old person who um, is going to potentially pass away in the next like few years or so, right? Like they have it a whole different perspective than somebody who has 40 or so years or 50 or so years to continue to invest. An 18 year old, however, has a completely different risk portfolio than even you. So they can go heavy in crypto. They can go heavy in genomics. They can go heavy in all of the things, AI, et cetera. They can go heavy in those things because they have a bigger appetite for risk and they have a longer spectrum in which they can invest in these things. Same thing should be considered when it comes to SEO and when it comes to content. These brands need to be thinking about their own risk portfolio and how comfortable they are investing in high risk opportunities. For example, if you are starting to plateau, 
maybe it's time to look at how you got to this point and realize you got there on the back of, let's say, low-risk content. Low-risk content being a handful of landing pages that are going after keywords that you know have product market fit, like people are looking for them, you know that they're in the SERP, you know that people are going to find these pages, you know that the competitors aren't that significant, you go after those pieces. And you've been able to ride that wave and do really, really well. At a certain point, if you want to continue with growth, you have to innovate. So rather than going 90% into that type of content, it might be time to scale that back to 50% and put the other 50% into something that is high risk. Maybe you're going to invest in influencer marketing. Maybe you're going to invest in TikTok. Maybe you're going to invest in Reddit. What can you do with your content investment that is going to change the trajectory of your content marketing efforts? I think so many brands get so comfortable in a habit where for five years they will do something and it allows them to ride a wave that they never stop to innovate and think, okay, maybe we should try something different to see if we can get a competitive advantage. Because the more we experiment and the more we tinker, the more likely it is that we're going to find an advantage that our competitors have written off and have said, oh, it's dead. That doesn't work anymore. Or let's ignore it. That's not something that would work for our space. If you can experiment and try something new before your competition and you can see signals, that demonstrates an amazing arbitrage opportunity. Right now, there are tons of them sitting in front of SaaS marketers. You look at things like Reddit, you look at things like TikTok, you look at Substack, you even look at podcasts. All of these things that are sort of fringe are amazing opportunities to experiment with because currently the investment can be relatively low to get a signal into whether or not this is something you should invest in long term. And speaking of investments, to close the circle, uh, Adobe went from on-premise to uh, cloud, meaning offering subscriptions in 2012. Back then, their stock price was 31 US dollars. Now it's 630. So, uh, yeah, you know, for anybody who wants to get a grasp of the the evolution of Adobe, not just in content, but in business as a whole, check out the stock price over the last... uh, 20 years it's 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 pretty astonishing but i love the way that you think about content and content marketing as an investment because it also opens the door of thinking of some things as things that grow or tactics that grow over time right there's obviously balance where that you have to strike where you drive results but you also need to think about the long-term growth of the next 12 24 maybe 48 months and i feel like a lot of time and this is a bit sad a lot of time these angles get lost in the Twitter conversation. It's all about, you know, like, oh, what's the latest and greatest to make this article rank, but it doesn't, Right. there's no taking a step back and looking at a greater picture. And it's so key, right? Like you have to look at it from a holistic view where it's like, all right, what is the total, uh, the same way that you would view an investment, right? Like when you're looking at an investment, you're thinking to yourself, how much can this organization grow? Like what is their business model? Who's the founder? You're thinking about all of these things. What is the total addressable market for them? we should be thinking the same way, but from a content lens. So like when you're creating a piece of content, is there an opportunity for this topic to increase in demand in the next 10 years? Because if you look at things like sourdough and you looked at 2019, sourdough was decent. But when the pandemic hit, everyone was looking up sourdough recipes. So if you happen to be the blogger who created a blog on sourdough recipes, you got a nice check in 2020 because you were able to reap the rewards of having something that increased in demand. And I think for some reason, we as marketers get out of that investor mindset. A landing page that you create today could be worth hundreds, if not millions of dollars 10 years from now, 
just because you were the first to the market and just because you continued to hold, just like you should also do with your stocks once in a while, for a long time, meaning you optimized it, you continued to build and links to it, you continued to adjust, you made sure that you were going after search intent related keywords that were reflected in Google's SERP. Like people just don't think long-term, they just create once and let it go. You need to create it once, and invest once, and then optimize and hold that asset for as long as you can. Yes, there's a, a big capital gains tax when taking yeah. a successful piece down too, too quickly or, or not giving it the right attention. <laughs> right, um, exactly, 100%. When uh, You have this really cool tweet uh, that you put out a while ago about content marketing, which says, create when you're not in the mood, experiment mm. in your spare time, consume with the creator's eye, create in the public regularly, understand psychology, prioritize storytelling, beginner's mindset, study the trends and be resilient. What are the trends that you see right now that really work? Yeah, great question. I think the biggest trend that I'm seeing is video. And I think it's important because everyone is gonna say, okay, we know video is cool. YouTube is a multi-billion dollar company, the best acquisition by a company in many years with Google for a billion dollars. It's really good acquisition. I get it, but hear me out. For dec for decades probably at this point, B2B marketers specifically, which is my lane of focus, have created written content. Now, if you look at the globe and you actually think about the type of content that most people want to consume, it's TV. Most people want to consume video content, whether it's on their phone or whether it's on TV, whether it's movies, etc. We want visual content that also has an auditory experience with it. But for some reason, we've been so connected as creators and as marketers to always want to write white papers, to always want to write these in-depth teardowns, myself is included. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I'm just saying that this is things that we do as B2B marketers. But the next wave of marketers, the next wave of professionals are really, really, really good at video. When you look at TikTok, these people who are being brought up on TikTok are creating like high production value content with a phone. And that to me demonstrates that the need and the requirement for video content is going to continue. It also demonstrates to me that the bar is going to be raised. So if you think your brand is going to be able to continuously sustain itself just on the back of a few animation videos and you bring someone off of Fiverr and telling them to throw together an animation, it probably isn't gonna work as well when you start competing with the TikTok culture and the influence that that is having on people. And I also think it's important to recognize that people are learning directly from these channels as well. Like you can go on Instagram, you can go on TikTok, you can go through the discovery page and you'll see people who are teaching great information about marketing, about finance, about spreadsheets, about HVACs, about lighting, about anything that you can think of there are educational assets being produced on video first channels. So what's the trend? I think the trend is that people need to wake up to the power of video. Another trend that I think is real and that a lot of people are sleeping on, and I talked about this probably three years ago and a lot of people thought I was out there with this idea, but we can continue to say, no, we're too good at writing, we're too creative, AI will never take our job, we're so good at this, like it's not gonna happen, I'm telling you, in 10 years, the entire game is going to be shook up by how good AI is going to become. 
Like there are, like you look at deepfakes today in the whole process of that creation. And there's a real, real fear that I would say isn't even a fear It's because it's going to be kind of cool that if somebody recorded a bunch of videos of me talking into a camera and they got all my facial recognition, blah, 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 they were able to do my voice because I've been on enough voice tracks, they downloaded all of this data, they could probably start to put fake, deep fake Rosses on Zoom calls to have my mannerisms, to make a pitch, to introduce clients to people, like all of those things, I believe will be automated and will be replaced using AI. And some people are listening to this and they're like, he's out to lunch. This makes no sense. I'm telling you, do some digging on this stuff. The research is demonstrating that the curve to this happening is actually happening very soon. Google came out with, I think it was called Google Duplex. If you're listening to this, do a quick search for Google Duplex and what it could do. It was booking calls for people. It would call the hair salon. It would try to book a hair appointment. And the person on the other end couldn't tell it was a human. And government officials saw this video and then started to say, this is not allowed. You now need, if you're going to have this type of AI, you have to have a disclaimer at the beginning of the call that says, this is an artificial intelligence bot. It is not actually a human. Do you accept this call? Why? Because it's so real because it is so real. So I think AI, as much as marketers want to say, is not going to take our jobs, is going to allow us to focus more importantly on things that we care about and that we can actually get, be creative on and that we should be spending our energy on. But a lot of the things like title tags, meta descriptions, all that stuff is gone. It's going to be gone. It, it, some of it's gone now. People just don't realize it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I'm going to be honest, I was more on the camp. Uh, I'm not sure AI is, is going to get to that point anytime soon. And what happened a couple of weeks ago, I saw a tool, a content creation tool that creates content that is indistinguishable from a human writer. Impossible to... And, and geez, like now I'm, I'm definitely other camp. And I'm like, yeah, we got to question some things. It's happening fast. And I think that's the that's the curve of technology. Like folks, uh, watch out for it. It's coming faster than many know. It's yeah, I think it's going to shake some people to the core. It certainly has me or has shaken me as an expert. Think about standing out in such a world, because in, in, in such a world, content is a commodity, right? There's no anybody can create content. There's no it's not a differentiator anymore. How do you stand out? I think you're you're spot on. I think it's uh, kind of blasphemous for a content marketing agency CEO to say that content is a commodity, but it is, right? Like content is so common. Everyone can create it. Anyone can create it. It's easier to create than ever before. It's also noisier than ever before. So it's a very, very real conundrum that everyone is up against. And I think the key to standing out is to do things that other people have not done. I think the the key part of the process continues to be try to push the needle, try to do things that are very difficult to replicate, try to create things that are so hard to do that other people can't copy you. The time in days of creating a blog post that were five productivity tips that you need to do to be successful are over because an AI can create that. Someone on Fiverr can get write that for $5 and it's no longer going to be valuable. But when you go into depth and you develop something that is truly valuable to your audience and you would typically even say it is so good that people would pay you for, that's when you can stand out. If you can create things that are so good that people would have paid you for it, that's 
arbitrage opportunities. And those are the things you should be looking for. And companies can do this too with their content, right? Like if you are a company and an organization, look at some of the things that are currently being offered to your target audience that are not free, that people might have to pay a small subscription for. You can create those things and give them away for free. And if you do that, you now have attention. You're giving value to people. There is a ton of value to be had as creators to do those types of things. I always advise folks like look at the competitors, go to Product Hunt, sort the content and see who's launching free things and then or launching paid things and then give those things away for free. And if they made the top of Product Hunt, if they made the top of Hacker News, they made the top of Reddit for a paid version and you can do it for free, you're going to stand out because people are going to say, wow, that's amazing that they gave the same thing, if not better, for free. So I think the key is to always try to push the needle to deliver more than what your competitors are doing. And that will help you stand out. And if your brand has a bit of personality, if your brand has a bit of some type of connection emotionally to people, that also can work wonders because people are still people. And as much as we can say we're very linear thinking and that we all are very um, logical, we rationalize everything. Nope, we're still humans. And humans are balls of emotions with a bunch of chemicals that can get thrown off, but just not having a good sleep. And if you can create content that connects with them on an emotional level, whew, it's gold. So that's what I strive to do. I strive to stay true to myself be a human, be real with folks. And that allows me to stand out. And I encourage our clients at Foundation to do the same and just lean into the fact that like we're people. So let's be people. Ooh, that's a finisher. I'm not ready to, to finish the interview just yet, but that's like a perfect, <laughs> you know, oh, would have been such a good closing line. But to your point, Ross, I think, I think content is only a commodity if you let it. And I think that one of the, you're absolutely spot on there. There's still ways to differentiate. One of them is information. Another of them is uniqueness, right? There's production value, all these kind of things. And while we speak about commodity content and commodities in general and production value, you also have this tweet where you talk about that pretty much all the SaaS companies out there are looking the same. Right. Yeah, it, yeah. It's true. <laughs> Guilty of that. Right. So tell me a bit more yeah. about that and, and like what's what should companies do? I mean, should they obviously should just look different or how should they think about the, the balance between providing something that people are familiar with versus something that stands out? Follow the leader is very real in SaaS. Follow the leader is a game that every a lot of SaaS companies play. And I get it because you see a major SaaS company change their aesthetic to a flat design, what does that mean? It means they must have done the research to show us that flat design works. So everybody switches and does exactly what that company does. And then it's a ripple effect because they start to see their competitors do it and then everyone starts to chase the same thing. And what I encourage folks to do is to stay focused on your customers and stop focusing so much on the competition. Like it's easy to get caught up in Let's watch our competitors so closely that we're going to change our entire strategy and blueprint because of what they've done. Even worse, stop being the CMO that shows up at a conference, hears someone talk about how flat design increased their conversion by 10% and then telling your entire team you have to do the same thing. Like those are the mistakes that we make and you know why we make them is because we're human, which is the exact same conversation we just had. But it's very difficult to realize you as a leader in an org need to have your own first principles around what you want to accomplish. And if you say we're going to be laser focused on 
doing what our customers want, then you will make decisions based off of that and you will use that as your guiding posts and your North Star. I do think there is some value in following the leader when you are early on in your SaaS company's lifestyle. Because at the end of the day, you need credibility. You coming to the market with very wonky, weird, strange design that nobody else has ever seen before may not do you a lot of favors when you have executives and enterprise level clients trying to make a decision between you and Salesforce. That is going to be very difficult. And Salesforce has a very basic design. So who do you think they're going to trust? Are they going to trust you? Probably not if they're enterprise level, definitely not if they're government. But if you're going after other startups, they just might like you. But you have to figure out your audience. And I would say in the early days, what's key is trust. And trust can come from taking inspiration from some of those larger companies. So if I was to kind of summarize it for organizations in SaaS in particular, as they think about their design, it would be base it off of what you want to accomplish, not what your competitors want to accomplish. Your competitors might want to switch their design because they just got a new CMO and they wanted to shake things up. That's not a good reason to follow the leader. You follow the leader based off of your actual customers and your own need as an organization. Preach. Yeah, I think, yeah, fantastic advice, Ross. And uh, we're coming closer to the end of our conversation, but uh, I have two more questions for you. The first one is, you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation that you were broke once and now yeah. you built this, you know, built great business or several great businesses. You know, you're really out there. You're an expert, you're a speaker, you're an angel investor. What is your advice for people who are broke right now and who want to do what you do? Great question. So my advice to anyone who is broke, struggling, doesn't really have clarity on, okay, I know I want to achieve things, but I'm not there yet, would be to double down on the things that you are really good at. For me, that was writing. Writing was my superpower. And I committed myself to making time in my calendar to write, to write, to write. I focused on building my skill set. And the way that I did that was I literally printed off a handful of blog posts that people had written for decades and I wrote down next to it what I would could learn from the way that they structured their pieces. I can remember taking books and analyzing, okay, this is how they started an introduction. And I gave myself what I would call homework. So give yourself homework the same way that you would in school to develop your skill set. The next thing that you need to do is remember the importance of your network and recognize that the internet has opened up a lane to connect with anyone. You can be a kid living in a very rural country place with nothing but access to the internet. And you can connect with some of the greatest minds living today using Twitter, LinkedIn, email, Facebook, you name it, Instagram, you can send DMs, you can ask questions, you can study their old YouTube videos, be very, very curious and committed to learning. I would strongly advise people to do those two things and you will eventually get where you want to be. Be consistent at saying, I need to improve in this skill set and go hard at it. Like put in the work, put in the time, develop that skill, put in the late nights if it's necessary. You do what you have to do to get out of it and then use the internet to be the greatest equalizer of all time. Reach out to people send a DM, tweet at someone, build a relationship, follow them, etc. Create a list on Twitter of the 50 people that you feel like you want to be like 
follow them, engage with them, interact with them, and you will be surprised when the people that you idolize become your peers and you start to shake hands with them and show up at dinners with them. And then you're able to say to yourself, wow, I did it. Um, and that is a very cool, cool situation to be in. And then you just set even higher ambitions for what you want to accomplish next. And my last question, where can people find and follow you? Yeah, you can find me on all of the various social media channels. My Twitter handle is at the coolest cool. I am uh, a huge Lupe Fiasco fan and I created my Twitter handle when I was in university as a song called The Cool, which was a constant reminder to me to not try to be the coolest kid. Just do the things that you're excited about and do the things that are meaningful to you. So that was what inspired my handle. Um, and I still kept it to this day. Um, but you can find me on all of those various social media platforms and I would love to connect with folks. And before we wrap up, Kevin, thank you for having me on. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate what you're doing for the industry. I appreciate the content that you're putting out there for the marketers of the world. And the more that we can have content like this out there, the better the industry is going to be able to serve our clients, each other, our companies that we work in and ourselves. And that's really what it comes down to. So thanks for having me on. It's been a, it's been a blast. Pleasure is all mine, Ross. Thanks so much. You're a fantastic guy. You do some really cool stuff uh, and you certainly make the industry better. Thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge. No worries. I appreciate you. That's a wrap. Thanks, man. That was awesome. Three, two, one.